Welcome. Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, Tiffany Marching. This week's episode, we speak with Jeff Clark, an Air Force veteran. Jeff Clark was born and raised in northern Oklahoma. He has an MBA from Southwestern College and is currently studying for his business doctorate in strategic management. He believes leadership must be genuine, purposeful, and strategic. His first book, entitled Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm through Tactical 16 Publishing, will release soon. No frills, no BS, just leadership principles you need to know today. Jeff Clark, U.S. Air Force veteran for over 12 plus years. I was in medical logistics and supply chain management. Uh, as well as training, um, I did four years as an instructor. Uh, I've been stationed in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think the best, uh, maybe the highlight of my career was getting to do uh, joint assignments, and I did two joint assignments with the Army. Um, one of them was at the medical education uh, and training campus where I did, uh, we were instructors together, and I kind of led the Army program. Um, because they were kind of new to the joint environment as far as the training piece goes. And then the other one was right after that, I did it at Brooks Army Medical Center there on Fort Sam Houston, and I ran the medical warehouse operations for the Army in a joint logistics environment. So that was pretty cool. Dental flight commander was a lieutenant colonel. He was an orthopedic, or he's a, a oral surgeon who um, was in the civilian world prior to. And then he was like, "I want to serve my country, but I want to do it as an oral surgeon." And they're like, "You have so much experience that we'll bring you in as a lieutenant colonel. If that's fine." He's like, "I don't care. I mean, it's money." So he came in and was doing his job, and he wasn't even there a year. He got deployed, and he shows up to the deployment, and they're like, "Hey, doc, we're glad you're here. Here's the tents and all that." He's going, like, oh, "No, I'm a." I'm a oral surgeon. He's like, no, no, you're here deployed as a doctor. You're a doctor by trade, which means you've gone to a medical school. So you're going to be our, you know, our new chief. Well, I can't remember what he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, I spent the next six months, you know, right there with other surgeons and other docs and just treating people. This guy rarely did any dental stuff until one day. He said uh, two CIA officers and like three or four Navy SEALs came walking in and they said, we heard you're an oral surgeon. He's like, yeah, we have a patient we need you to operate on, but you can't ask any questions. You can't ask us who you just, you need to tell us who you need to do this job. We have NDAs you need to sign, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, I need at least one technician and, and probably, you know, somebody and anesthesia-wise to stand by. There are cool three people. We'll be back in a little bit. They came back and closed off room. The SEALs were there, two CIA agents, and they brought in one of the SEAL dogs. So I guess they're out on a mission, and this you know SEAL dog bit something, and it knocked out a tooth. 
and they were like, we need him to be operated on like right now. So he literally, he's like, I'm an oral surgeon. I got deployed to just to be a doctor. And then all of a sudden they do bring a canine in and tell me that I need to do oral surgery on a canine, which I've never done it before ever in my life. No joke. We need him fixed right now. Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, Tiffany Marching. This week's episode, we speak with Jeff Clark, an Air Force veteran. Jeff Clark was born and raised in northern Oklahoma, is an Air Force veteran with well over a decade of service as a medical logistician. He has an MBA from Southwestern College and is currently studying for his business doctorate in strategic management. After his time in service in the Air Force, Jeff returned to government service and has learned valuable lessons on leadership. He believes leadership must be genuine, purposeful, and strategic. Jeff started writing down his thoughts as a form of therapy and creative expression. In doing so, a love of talking about leadership developed. Jeff continues sharing those concepts, philosophies, and stories through his own writing, as well as his volunteer work with multiple veteran organizations. Veteran organizations he has been using his time to mentor and help veterans are Vets to Industry, Veterati, and the Enduring Campaign. Jeff specializes in nonfiction leadership, and his first book entitled Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm through Tactical 16 Publishing will release soon. It will take readers on a journey to build their leadership and become more impactful leaders. Regardless of what industry you are in, his take on leadership will have something for everyone. He built a proven method of applying leadership that is military-tested, honest, truthful, and strategic in its intentions. No frills, no BS, just leadership principles you need to know today. Jeff Clark, U.S. Air Force veteran for over 12 plus years. I was in medical logistics and supply chain management, uh, as well as training. Um, I did four years as an instructor. Uh, I've been stationed in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think the best, uh, maybe the highlight of my career was getting to do uh, joint assignments, and I did two joint assignments with the Army. Um, One of them was at the medical education uh, and training campus where I did, uh, we were instructors together and I kind of led the army program um, because they were kind of new to the joint environment as far as the training piece goes. And then the other one was right after that, I did it at Brooks Army Medical Center there on Fort Sam Houston. And I ran the medical warehouse operations for the army in a joint logistics environment. So that was pretty cool. Oh.
whole different like mindset from being in a joint environment, what the Army prioritized spending money on versus what the Air Force did. And I think after like, and I had a lot of conversations with some of my you know Army peers, and I was like, it's not about making sure that we have the best quality of things because that's not our mentality. It's simply a taking care of people type of thing and enforcing the Pentagon to give us money for the priorities. So it's just a simple, it's a reverse of things, whereas it's not right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I tell you, they, they joint basing San Antonio ran by the Air Force changed some minds of the other services because they were oh, like, yeah. We can get air conditioning in our gym. We're not going to give you air conditioning. We're going to bulldoze the whole gym and build a brand new one. And they were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you have a blank check, when Congress gives you a blank check to do joint basing, you just start writing stuff down you want to mm-hmm. buy and make them tell you no. And they got, they demolished like three gyms and built a new one and like all this stuff. And the army was like, I can't believe how nice this is. I was like, yeah, man, this yeah. is what you get. When you get a blank check, you take advantage of it. You don't <laughs> yep. buy beans and bullets. You buy other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I'll tell you what, too. As So when I went to the reserves, um, our two weeks a year was generally somewhere else besides where our, our home unit was. And so we went up to Fort Dix or somewhere up north. I can't remember where now. But it was a joint base. And every time we'd go up there, we would be trying to con- our darndest to convince the the um, person cutting the orders, hey, we need to get um, you know, just put on there that meals are not available, so we can get money for meals. Why did we want money for meals? So we could go over to the Air Force dining facility <laughs> and not the Army one, <laughs> and and the gym. I mean, I had heard. Um, how much better the, the gyms were. But when I went into that gym over there, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a clean gym like you would find out in the community that people would pay to go to. Oh, but yeah. The, Ar- the Army ones were like pool gyms that are kind of run down and the only air conditioning you would get were those big fans that would made more noise and they did produce air. Yeah. So when I was on Fort Team Houston, they built, uh, because they were doing joint medical training there, they built a new dining facility. And it was a two-story, one of the biggest buildings I've ever seen. It was huge. And all the students from the campus were supposed to go to it. So Army, Navy, Air Force, they were all supposed to go to it. That was their dining facility. Mm-hmm. And then Fort Sam Houston had their own dining facilities for the soldiers from uh, the different companies and brigades that they could go to, not in a training status. Well... Then they sent a memo down saying, if you're not in a training status, you cannot go to this dining facility because all the soldiers, you know, and Marines from the other companies and brigades around the installation started going to the Air Force built dining facility because Mm -hmm. they were following the Air Force meal plan and the Army dining facilities were following theirs, which is like a low sodium and all this type of meal plan. And it was kind of very bland food. So Mm -hmm. they literally, like all the generals had to get together and they were like, hey, we got to send a memo down because nobody's using our other dining facilities and this dining facility is getting overwhelmed. And Mm -hmm. so all the soldiers were so mad. They're like, the food's so much better over there. Why can't we go over there? Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, <And you laughs> they said no. Uh huh. And you said 
you know, you said not that one is more right or wrong than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't say this to put down the Oni, because uh, that's what I did for 24 years, but... Under a roof, in air conditioning, you could be in a hole in Afghanistan trying mm-hmm. to sleep while mortars are going off. Be thankful mm-hmm. for what you're doing, because there's your brothers and sisters are out there doing... You know, the ugly shit because you aren't. Mm-hmm. And so that you don't have to. So let's put it into perspective a little bit. You know, we love to say we're all family and we're all equal, but, but to a degree, we're not because there's people out there doing stuff, sleeping in a tank and things like that, and that you wouldn't want to do. So, mm-hmm. and I, that always was kind of the humbleness thing that kind of hit me. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why I wanted to, I wanted to write a book. Uh, to kind of share some of that because, yeah. you know, I definitely appreciate the people who did things that, you know, so I didn't have to. This this podcast has been so much better for me, I think, than for anybody else because I love hearing those stories from those people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one episode that I recorded that has not yet been published of uh, of an Air Force pilot who did some amazing things. And we connected outside of the podcast recording. And, you know, I I was downplaying my time in the military and just exalting her because I was like, man, you did some badass stuff. I mean, that was amazing. And she said, you did too. And I'm like, not really. I, I, you know, I, I just don't see it. Comparing each other's careers is kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Yes. You know, you did stuff because that was the job you either chose or you were told to go into. Mm-hmm. I did stuff for the same reason. But some of the things I had to do helped you get where you were. Some of the mm-hmm. things that you did help, you know, protect me, keep you safe at night. So I think it's, it's like comparing apples to oranges, but at the same time, you know, and that's why I said, I think if you asked any of those special ops guys, they would tell you. I'm not here alone. I'm here because there's a hundred people behind me, you know, making sure I have what I need to go do my job so I can come home safely. And they'll never, ever be able to put a value to that because I think it's just, to them, it's priceless. Mm-hmm. Having having exactly what they need to do their job, come home, that that is priceless to them. Yeah. I'd be willing to bet. Yeah, and I can't remember if it was a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret in the Army that said this that when I when I did his episode, but he said, um, you know, like when I we were we were kind of dancing around this you know particular topic, and yeah, it was actually the special forces guy, the Green Beret, and he had said, you know, he said it because I was talking as a as a blanket statement on special operations as a whole, not just Green Berets, and he said, well, there's a reason why. Uh, Navy SEALs are referred to as the teams because that's what they are. They're teams. There are no individuals. Same thing with with you know, being a ranger, being a um, special forces Green Beret is that, yes, you do all this additional training on top of whatever your base training and job training is, um, and it is more elite training. I I think the one thing I would say is don't be afraid to connect with other veterans and pick their brains because they're the source of the resources. All these programs and all these government programs and brochures and pamphlets that you see are only scratching the surface. 
Go get the real information from people who have done it. Don't be like, well, this guy was in the Army, and I was in the Marine Corps, or I was in the Navy, or I was in the Air Force. He's not going to want to talk to me. That's baloney. I've probably mentored more people that were not in the Air Force than I have mentored people that were in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. So, um, and never once did I say, or did they say, oh, well, we're different because we we're, you know, in different services. No, no. We wore the uniform. Everybody has to transition. It's almost the same for all of us in what we have to do. Your experience is going to be different, but we can help each other through those things. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I would even uh, ask this other question. Um, we were talking about comparing um, jobs of being a Navy SEAL versus, I don't know, being a cook or something that might you know, be downplayed. Um, but if there's an MOS or an AFSE in the military, it's because that particular job is needed. Sure, so, SEALs got to eat. Yep. Um, so, SEALs got to eat. And, and, yeah, and even like people who do human resources or personnel services, um, if you want to get paid while you're overseas, somebody's got to be back there doing that, that, uh, pay for you, making sure it's t- being taken care of. So with that in mind, how would you define success? Like, how do you know, how do you know when you have actually succeeded? So success, in my opinion, success is, is not a standard. So your definition of success is different than my definition. I can hear in your voice that you feel successful about your podcast because of the stories you've helped tell and the people you've helped interview. That's your level of success. I don't have a podcast, so that's not success to me. That's success to you, and I'm very, very happy for you. So success to me is it's not a standard. You have to find success by asking, are you... Are you accomplishing your purpose? Your purpose was to do a podcast and to help tell military stories. You're successful at that. So success is not a paycheck. It's not, you know, it's not all these glorious and glamorous things. It may be to you. Success is your definition of it. Don't let other people's definition of success be your definition. Make your own by finding out what is your purpose in life, what are you trying to accomplish, what are your goals, and then evaluate your success based upon how you accomplish those things. But don't be afraid to reach out to other people to help you accomplish them because there's a lot of willing people in this world, you know, um, that, that are there to help. So don't don't assume that. And success is not a standard. It's your definition of it. Uh, reach out to your fellow brothers and sisters first because they're the ones who have gone through it. They know the ins and outs, the tips and the tricks. And don't assume that you're going to inconvenience them. We are a tight-knit family. I don't care what anybody says, and there's plenty of veterans that are out there willing to listen and help you out. Even a 15-minute phone call just to pick their brains, don't shy away from that. Uh, two, I would say, look at the resources. Um, mm-hmm. Vesta industry um, is a huge, huge resource right now. It's growing big time. So go to vestaindustry.org. I'm not just saying that because I volunteer there. 
Uh, I'm saying it because I've seen it change lives. I've physically seen it change lives. We'll be right back. Success is such a multi-dimensional thing. Success can be written down. It can be achieved. It can be money. But, you know, you still achieved a lot, and that, and that is success. And, you know, so just because you didn't make that rank doesn't mean... That means you weren't successful at one of your goals. You weren't unsuccessful as a whole. You just missed the mark on one thing. That's not success. That's just falling short of one thing. That's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. We all do that. Well, and like you, you have a podcast. You successfully put together a podcast. Mm-hmm. Your goal might be a million viewers, and you might have mm-hmm. fell short at 950,000. Mm-hmm. You fell short of your goal. You didn't achieve that goal. You fell short, but you were still successful. Nine hundred and fifty thousand views would still be else. That's still a lot of views, <laughs> yeah. you know. So you're right. You know, there's a big difference between success and achieving a goal. But just because you fell short of a goal doesn't mean you failed. Watched the uh, Joe Rogan podcast like a month or two ago, and he had Marcus Luttrell up there. Mm-hmm. You know, Marcus Luttrell's probably done a million media interviews off the movie, the book. And all his lone survivor stuff that he's doing. And he still got a little choked up and a little emotional when he talked about his story of being in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Especially when he talked about the people who tried to rescue him and the people that came to rescue him. And for a moment there, you could could feel his grief, but you could also Mm -hmm. feel the pain and his grief for the people that tried to take care of him. That's where the loss really hit Mm -hmm. him hard. And, uh, I mean, as much as he's had to talk about that moment over the last multiple years since that event happened and the movie went out and all that, he still, still Mm -hmm. got a little choked up and had to kind of say, take a breather. You know, so I, I can't imagine what it was like it yeah. shoes, let alone bringing it up again for probably the millionth time. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if you know who John McCaskill is. Um, yeah, but yeah, he was supposed to be on that on that mission, and he he he. Um, I did an episode with him, and he talks about that about that um, Operation Redwing, and he was supposed to be on that mission, and Murph Murphy is the one that went in his stead. And so he was like, dude, I was supposed to be there. Mm. I was supposed to be there. Why did it? So he had that survivor's guilt of, he's like, I lost all my buddies. Only one person survived. Yeah. Um, and, and so one, you, you're having to grieve the loss of those, that tight knit group. And then two, there's that survivor's guilt. And then, and then to top it off, oh, by the way, he was supposed to be there. That makes yeah. that survivor's guilt even more raw. Oh, yeah. And, and so that's the kind of story that I want people to be able to hear is kind of like what you mentioned earlier. You know, it's great that, um, I, I, I'm totally with you. It's great to give credit where credit is due. Not only did, uh, cause I want, I want everybody on the podcast. I've had uh, now a two-star general. I've had I've had uh, four generals that I've already published their episode. I'm going to be recording another general um, later this month. But I also have people that have been in for three or four years. Sure. Um, and I do 
you know, I do not downplay the Navy SEAL or the Special Operations, Green Beret, anything in the Special Operations community, because there is an extra caliber of a person to fulfill those roles. Absolutely. But that does not mean that if you didn't fill those positions, you don't have a story to tell. Well, I think if you ask those guys, those special ops guys, if you ask them, they would say, I, I'm not here because I'm badass by myself. I'm here because I have a team of badasses around me. And there's a whole brigade, whole company, whole squadron of support personnel behind me and the team that make me get here. And I think if you ask, I'd, I'd be willing to bet almost every single one of them would say that. They would give that. That is, those are those here. They're heroes. So we look at the special operations community as badasses and kind of our heroes because they do the unthinkable. But I'd be willing to bet that those guys look at the support personnel and all the people that are behind them as their heroes because they couldn't do their job soundly. Thank you. Have a nice day. Without that support. And I think that's a great point is there was people behind Operation Red Wing. There was hundreds of people behind Operation Red Wing, and they all have a story to tell, um, and they all had to witness. I mean, there's probably plenty of them that ran into Marcus Luttrell, mm-hmm. and he went missing. And I can't imagine how, how what they were thinking when they sent those birds off to go rescue him, and they didn't come back. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we're a family. As a military, we're a family. You know, yeah. and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. And only certain parts of it get the glory or the or the news coverage. And yeah, uh, there's plenty of those stories to tell. That's absolutely true. It was, and it wasn't. To be honest, uh, it, I did not even know until his book that there were the Army Night Stalkers that were part of that mission. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, there's a lot to that story mm-hmm. that I didn't know until I read his book. And uh, I thought Clint Eastwood did a great job with the movie, but man, mm-hmm. it, there's no way you could that that movie should have been like a 12 hour movie. Mm-hmm. If you told the story just how he had it in the book, that would have been a 12 hour movie, at least, yeah. because there was so much that they had to leave out. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there was a lot to it. And and I saw an interview where um, of who was it? It was Marcus Luttrell, and I think. Clint Eastwood was not there, but it was Marcus Luttrell and maybe the person who wrote the script from the book. Um, but there was a couple of people, and there, the, the topic of discussion was the movie. And a question came up about discrepancies that were in the movie. And one that he said, um, the part where he was, you know, moving, uh, moved a mile maybe, or uh, uh, whatever the distance was. And um, it says that he walked a mile. He's like, no, I did not walk. I crawled using my elbows, digging. I did a low crawl, digging my elbows in because that's the only way I, I could move. I couldn't get up and walk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, hearing that, I just thought, man, I mean, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What those? What some of those guys have to do for? You know, for a living is uh, it definitely makes me appreciate my job. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was in the military, wearing the uniform, and I met some of those guys, and I, I learned what they did for their job, mm-hmm. I complained a little less because yeah. I certainly was not out there in a swamp 
or low crawling or sleeping in a hole or anything mm-hmm. like that. There were plenty of people that were. So when my when I when I thought about complaining, I showed up sometimes. And when my troops complained, I'm like, hey, listen, you're here without that support. And I think that's a great point is there was people behind Operation Red Wing. There was hundreds of people behind Operation Red Wing. And they all have a story to tell. Um, and they all had to witness. I mean, there's probably plenty of them that ran into Marcus Luttrell. Mm-hmm. And he went missing. And I can't imagine how, how what they were thinking when they sent those birds off to go rescue him and they didn't come back. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we're a family. As a military, we're a family. You know, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes, and only certain parts of it get the glory or the or the news coverage. And yeah, uh, there's plenty of those stories to tell. That's absolutely true. It was, and it wasn't. To be honest, uh, it, I did not even know until his book that there were the Army Night Stalkers that were part of that mission. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, there's a lot to that story mm-hmm. that I didn't know until I read his book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought Clint Eastwood did a great job with the movie, but man, mm-hmm. it, there's no way you could... That that movie should have been like a 12-hour movie. Mm-hmm. If you told the story just how he had in the book, that would have been a 12-hour movie, at least, yeah. because there was so much that they had to leave out. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there was a lot to it. And, and I saw an interview where... Um, of who was it? It was Marcus Luttrell, and I think it, Clint Eastwood was not there, but it was Marcus Luttrell and maybe the person who wrote the script from the book. Um, but there was a couple of people, and there, the, the topic of discussion was the movie. And a question came up about discrepancies that were in the movie. And one that he said, um, the part where he was you know, moving, I moved a mile maybe, or uh, uh, whatever the distance was, and um, it says that he walked a mile. He's like, no, I did not walk. I crawled using my elbows, digging, I did a low crawl, digging my elbows in because that's the only way I, I could move. I couldn't get up and walk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, hearing that, I just thought, man, I mean, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What those? What some of those guys have to do for you know for a living is uh, it definitely makes me appreciate my job. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was in the military, wearing the uniform, and I met some of those guys, and I, I learned what they did for their job, mm-hmm. I complained a little less because yeah. I certainly was not out there in a swamp or low crawling, or sleeping in a hole, or anything mm-hmm. like that. There were plenty of people that were. So when my when I when I thought about complaining, I showed up sometimes. And when my troops complained, I'm like, hey, listen, you're here. Thank you, and have a nice day. Subscribe now. <laughs>